0: And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to episode 339 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show a good friend of mine, Shannon Zalonka. Now, Shannon is now a special operations firefighter in the Orlando area. But her early life is wrought with trauma. She grew up around addiction. She was actually abandoned in a hotel room by her mother as a child, ended up in the foster system. And then a series of incredible interactions with some amazing people led her into a very positive path, ended up in the position that she's in now. So I truly urge you to listen to this from the beginning to the end. There are so many areas interwoven into her story, whether it's hope, whether it's overcoming addiction, whether it's mental health so an incredibly powerful conversation before we get to that episode like i say every week please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on subscribe to the show leave feedback i truly love reading your feedback and then leave a rating each five star rating truly makes us more and more visible to people looking for a project like this And then, as I underline every single week, this is a free library for you, the listener, the audience. And you can use it however you would like, individually within your organization. All I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can make sure they get to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Shannon Zalonka. Enjoy. So Shannon, I want to start by saying welcome to our home.
1: Thank you for having me here.
0: Well, thank you for driving up. Um, so this whole interview kind of was sparked by that amazing video you did, and we're going to get in- into that. But um, you know, we worked together for several years, uh, Orange County. But the story that people are about to hear, I think, is the human side that people really need to hear. We all walk around with our badges and think that we're you know robots and I think especially now in this time, the the human element behind first responders is very important.
1: It is. It really is. And we forget. We forget sometimes. And we need to come back to remember there's a human being there.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think the only way to do this interview is is Mm -hmm. chronologically. It's very important. So, let's start at the very beginning. So, where were you born? And then tell me about your your mom and dad
1: at that time. Well, um, everyone has a story. So this is just mine. And I hope, I truly hope more people will share their stories. I was born in Alabama with my mom and my older brother who had a different dad. His name is Chad. We, My dad didn't know about me. He didn't know about me till I was four. I lived in Alabama. I had aunts and uncles and a grandma and we i was put in beauty pageants i had all these crowns alabama was an amazing memory i had let's see i had stayed at my grandma's a lot my mom would leave sometimes we had a house we were walking distance from our school there was a little bit of abuse at that time but not not nearly as bad as it would be later. So my mom would leave a lot and we would stay with my grandma and my aunts and uncles or whatnot. And then one night we woke up in the middle of the night and she said, it's time to go. And we go outside and there's a U-Haul. And in the back of the U-Haul was a day bed. And it is a day bed that was in our house. That was tied to the wall so we couldn't fall off or anything like that. Like there was railings all around it. And that was a, so my brother and I, Chad, we could, we could sleep there while we left. I was about six years old at that time when we left. Let me back up a little bit. When I was four, my father had found out about me. So I had spoken to my father when I was four, and he lived in California, but that was it. We just had a phone relationship. I'd never met him. So fast forward a little bit when I was six, and we left. We drove through the night, and we ended up in Mississippi, and we would We would travel from house to house the u-haul had eventually gone away we had gone had gone to multiple elementary schools within this year or so and we had stayed at this one house that the floors were so bad they were they were sloped up and that at that house remember i had done beauty pageants so at that house we had this buick and the Buick got repoed and it had one of a prized possession in it of mine. It was a, it was an ice crown and I was so devastated. I lost it and it was just gone forever. I'd already lost. I moved to a foreign place. I never talked to my grandma, my aunts, uncles, my cousins. Didn't have any communication with them anymore. It was my mom and my brother and I and she would move us around a lot. We went to multiple elementary schools and when the elementary school would start asking some questions, that's when we would that's when we'd leave. As far as I'd skip school a lot. I wouldn't go to school for 3 4 days a week. I'd go one day. So we'd let, we'd leave. And then eventually we ended up in Seattle. This is where things got really, really bad. And we depended on the church a lot. So those churches that give to children have have had a huge impact on my life. And a lot of my memories are from those churches giving us food, the Christmas gifts. They they really made a huge impact on my life. And I'll never, ever forget that. So we moved to Seattle to this apartment. And My older brother was getting a little bit more challenging. He was just getting older. He was starting to challenge my mom. She was a single, single mom. And the abuse was getting a little bit worse, a lot worse. We didn't have much food in the, cupboards so we depended on school food for us I ate breakfast and lunch but dinners we didn't have much and then on the weekends we didn't really have much summertime didn't have much so I'd go into the kitchen and look for food and there wouldn't be anything I remember seeing the cabinets the cupboards empty and there was like a box of Ritz crackers there and we would eat that. And during this time, my brother was my escape. He would make me laugh so hard. We had we would have nights of just we would just crack each other up. We would have so much fun. At sometimes I had milk coming out of my nose, and we just had we just had a lot of good times to try and escape from the bad times with my mom not that she was a bad person but there was a lot of bruises with us we would if we did something wrong it was pretty painful and there was ways that she would hurt us that it didn't leave bruises the cops would get called to us all the time and she would take us outside to coach us she would take me outside and she would coach me and she would say, you, the cops are coming. This is what happened. This is the story. So we go back inside and I agree with my mom. This is the story. So they couldn't do anything. My, my brother would be like, no, they're, this is not what happened. And of course the cops would listen to us. I didn't know any better. My older brother, Chad, he's three and a half years older. He's knew a lot more than myself, and he would tell me all these things, but I had to you have to listen to your mom, you don't know any better so in this apartment we I'd go through the cupboards, and at one time, I found what I know now to be multiple crack pipes, and I remember thinking when I was eight, I was like, that must what make that is what must make my mom so mad is this because she was always in the kitchen if people came over we weren't allowed in the kitchen and then there were some really really bad nights there uh christmas was around that time was great because of, i spoke about it a little bit ago but it was great because of the churches we always had a tree whether it was big or small. We always had the gifts because they would donate us, donate it to us. I remember seeing the ladies come with the boxes of gifts that it was for us. And so Santa wasn't, didn't exist anymore because I knew that it came from them. And I think the hardest part is that when we did leave Alabama, it was was around Christmas time. Because my grandma had a tree, what I thought was a million presents underneath at that time. Because you see a different perspective. It's different as a kid. And I never got to open those. And it was it's a little traumatic as a kid because that was your stuff. That's, that's yours. It's that's all you know. Christmas is the best time of the year for us. And... So that was a little hard. Christmas has always been, not always, but it was pretty difficult. Chad was then at one point taken away from my mom and I. And he went into group homes. He would also run away sometimes. So they'd put him in group homes. They'd bring him back. But the day that, I'm not sure what, if they're called Department of Children and Families out in Washington State, but that government agency the day they came and picked him up was really hard because he was my best friend he was he was all I knew I didn't have friends at school because I didn't have clothes really I mean I had clothes but just not clean clothes every day and they looked funny and they were ragged and I didn't know any better so people weren't kids weren't nice to me at all and he got taken away in a van. He told me he loved me, and I'll never forget the van closing, and I I lost him. That was he was it. He went to live with his father in Los Angeles. So we had we had two different dads. We have two different dads. So he went there, and then it was just my mom and I. And the abuse had subsided a lot. It was if I had done something, something wrong, it was a spanking here or there, but nothing like it was in that apartment. And we... The, right before we lost that apartment, I remember the power was out, and she told us... She told me the power was out that from a lightning strike. But now that I look back on it, it was a bunch of days the power was out. I'm pretty sure the bill wasn't paid. But as... <laughs> Disgusting as it sounds, it—we uh, were peeing in buckets because she also didn't pay the water, so we were almost squatters in this apartment. And then we, after that, we left. Shortly after that, I didn't know any better. It's it just my mom told me to do something. I did it. So we left. It was just her and I. She had a way of, she had a way of talking to people that made them feel sorry for us. She's a single mom with her kid help us out. So we moved into a lot of different places, homeless shelters. Some nights we didn't have a place to go. So some nights we slept under the stars and we slept in strangers' houses and she would be gone a lot of nights through the night. And, but I, I was never really alone. I had always stayed with whoever we were staying with, or I'd go some. She found someone to take care of me, and I'd go somewhere and take. She would leave for the night. The night that put me in foster care is a very, very clear night to me. We had gone to a hotel, and it was fifty one dollars for a stay that night. And it was an afternoon. We had. She slept a lot. She slept a lot. So I slept a lot. And she... She was getting ready to go out again. And I had never really been left alone. Every time she had gone out, it was always my brother and I when he was there. Or I was with somebody. And she said... So I didn't explain this in the beginning. I was born with a different name. So my real birth name is Shandara J. Ora Russ Russ is my brother's father's name so my my brother's name is Chad Russ so she wanted us to have the same name my father's not on my birth certificate so she would say Shandara we're I'm gonna leave I'll be right across the street and I said okay and it was this odd looking restaurant and then next to it I believe was a strip club because it was, there was no windows and it was next to this diner restaurant. I find it a very odd business now that I've looked back onto it, but I remember that.
0: Can you still see it in your mind's eye now?
1: Absolutely. Right. It's so vivid. So she said, I'll be right there. If you have any problems, I'll come right back. I said, okay. So she had left and... I was so scared. And she would call me a couple times that night, and I didn't sleep that entire night. I was 8 years old at this point, about to turn 9. And I seriously thought there were I I wouldn't get off the bed cuz I thought there was something going to grab me that was under the bed. And she would call, I'd tell her oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then maybe two, three in the morning. I just didn't get any calls anymore. I didn't know what to do. I was so hungry. At about 8am, I was still awake. I'd been up all night. I'd never been by myself like that. And I went out of the hotel room. And there was this exit door. I didn't go through the lobby. I went out this exit door and I went across the street to this diner and I asked the guy in the back, I said, is my mom in there? My name is Shandara. I, she said she was here last night. And he said, um, let me check. And he said, are you hungry? And I said, yes, um, I'd really, really like to eat. So he gave me a plate of food. Oh, sorry, this is tough. He gave me some food. And then a police officer showed up shortly after. And there's a portrait by Norman Rockwell, I believe, of a little boy and he has his bag running away and there's a police officer sitting next to him in a diner. That was me. I just didn't have the bag that I was running away. And this police officer, the kindest person I have ever met at that point and I, he was so nice to me and l- a little while a late a lady showed up with a garbage bag and we went back to the hotel room and she said just gather your things and it was it was hard putting all of my stuff into everything I'd known at that point into a stranger's garbage bag like I'm not I'm not garbage I felt like garbage and my mom was nowhere to be found and she'd left it was just i had no idea if she was intending to come back so we went to this office and we had talked to some of the kindest ladies i've ever met i still have some of the stuffed animals they gave me and i have a little White bear that I named in this office. And it's going around to all these ladies talking to them. And they were so kind. Then they fed me. I was still hungry. They fed me McDonald's. And I went into this office with those really uncomfortable chairs that are wooden. And they have that really rough fabric on them. They were red. I remember that. And I went into this office and I slept. And I slept on this but it was the best sleep I'd had in a while. Then I went to foster care. The ladies told me that my mom was looking for me, but she was not able to provide for me. The foster family I went to was two sisters, and I was the only kid there. I was really malnourished, so they had me drink things like milk every day and make sure I ate my vegetables and they really tried to take care of me as best as they could. I went to, it was the first time I'd ever gone to a school five days in a row because prior they start asking questions and we just leave and they had to really work with me because I was taught to lie a lot. And I didn't know it was normal that you can tell people the truth and it's okay. I didn't know that. And after, while I was in foster care, they contacted my biological father. And he goes, I've been trying to meet this child since she was four, since I found out about her. And I'd really like to take her i guess he used to send my mom, mom plane tickets and she would cash them out he tried so hard and when we left alabama we just disappeared no one could find us so my mom made sure of that for whatever reason so he came up the first time i met my father he walked out of the airplane with my older sister who sh- she has a different mom, obviously, and he had a ponytail Italian guy, and I was so excited to meet them so the first time they came up, I met my biological father and my older sister, Melissa. We went to the zoo and we went to it was pretty fun. I was really pale, I was getting my nutrition back still when I saw them, so I have a picture where I just look i you can see my eyes are a little bit sunken in and It just looks sad, (laughs) but they, the court process took a while and they were able to, they had to do, of course, the DNA test to make sure. And I, my father went back to California. I was still in foster care for a little bit. I don't know how long it was, but again, it's still not your home. I mean, I hadn't had a home in four years, so I really didn't know what a home was. But the last time I was, last week I was in foster care. My they were just amazing, and I wish I could tell them thank you, because they impacted my life more than they'll ever know. They showed me the positive, really positive that people can be nice to you. People are not mean to you. That's not normal for people to mean adults to be mean to you. It's not. That's not normal. She. They were just the kindest people. So my dad came for a second trip with my stepmom, Wendy. Wendy came up and they flew me back to San Francisco with them. And I met my oldest sister, Megan. Megan was adopted. My dad adopted her from his brother. So she's... Not to get too confusing, she's technically my cousin, but she's my sister. So he wanted to make sure that the family stays together. So he was a big advocate for kids and made sure that everybody stayed together. So my grandparents also adopted a child from their son, who's my cousin, Deanna, and Deanna and Megan are sisters biologically, but um, my dad wasn't able to adopt adopt Deanna. So I lived just in the suburbs of San Francisco with Wendy, my dad, Megan, and Melissa. Melissa and I shared a room. And it was difficult for Melissa too. The, she, had gone, she had her own room to someone who I didn't know... You were supposed to shower every day. I didn't know you are supposed to change your clothes every day. I didn't know how to eat properly. They always teased me because they were like, you came to live with us and all you ate was hot dogs and McDonald's.
0: <laughs> so you were raised on, probably. It was. Yeah.
1: That's all I'd, I had eaten. And so she taught, Melissa taught me a lot. Megan taught me a lot. And they showed me how to do laundry. They showed me. So it was a learning curve. And then we moved. We all got our own rooms and we moved into this amazing house. My dad owned construction businesses. So he was, he worked a lot. Wendy took care of us a lot. She drove us to and from whatever we needed. My mother ended up moving to San Francisco And she wasn't allowed to have my address. She wasn't allowed to see me unless it was supervised. So we went through a lot of therapists. So she could could only see me if a therapist was there. So then she had another child. And I have my little brother. His name is Zarlo. And he... He um, lived with his dad in the city, and I met him when he was just six months old. At this point, my name had been changed to Shannon Joy Manfredonia, because Manfredonia was my father's last name. So it had been legally changed. Everyone now knows me as Shannon. Then um, my mom was weird. I was 14. 14. And I received a phone call. And she said, she said you have a little sister. Now, Her name's Deanna. But I adopted her out to a family. And she wouldn't tell me the family. She wouldn't tell me anything. And that was the last time I had heard from my mom. Nothing just disappeared. And I knew that I had When she disappeared, I lost contact with Zarlo, my little brother. Chad was living in L.A. with his dad. And Chad was really difficult to have a relationship at this time. Because one day he'd be really excited to talk to me. And the other day he wanted nothing to do with me. We had flown him up to San Francisco so he could hang out with us for a couple days. I had gone down to LA, but at one point he said to me that he didn't want to be around me because I reminded him too much of the past. And he was getting into an older teenager and drinking a lot and going down a bad path. So his dad was just kind of told me things and warned me about it and So that was really, I struggled a lot as a teenager, not only in dealing with the hormones of being a teenager, but also I'm struggling with the abandonment issue with my mother. My brother doesn't want to talk to me anymore over something I didn't do. And then I'm also dealing with the fact of this lying issue. So my dad, he is a saint because he had to remold my brain and know this is how you talk to people. This is how you, you make sure you do things. We, we live life this way. And to remold I, was very difficult for him. So one time I lied about something at school. I was in fifth or sixth grade. And he made me sit down. It was two weekends I had to do it and write out a thousand times, I will not lie. And I did it. I fought it, but I did it. And ever since then, that really taught me a lesson to not lie. So I am an awful liar now. <laughs> <laughs> they, they know when I lie, because I won't look at them or I get really nervous or it, it, what he did worked, maybe not that instance, but overall on help remolding me so my dad built a pretty good life for us and i say a lot that he really saved my life because if he didn't if he did not take me out of that foster care system whether his Foster kids don't always stay with the same family and sometimes it's not their choice. So if I had been moved into group homes or whatnot, I don't know where I would be today. And it worries me because who would have remolded me? Would I have gone down my mother's path and been on the streets and on drugs and prostitute? What would I have, where would I have gone? The, so anyway, so, he built a really, really good life for us. And we had a boat and we went to a lake every summer and we, he worked so much during the week. Every Sunday, most Sundays, we'd either go to Costco, he'd wake up, make breakfast, but it wasn't breakfast. It's this dish called heart attack and it's this pasta dish with lots of cheese in it. And so we'd have this, <laughs> every Sunday we'd have this, his heart attack for breakfast. And we go to Costco or we for the weekend we'd go up to the lake and it was good my two older sisters and I were pretty close Megan was 18 pretty quickly but she was still living with us going to college Melissa was on the path to go to a four-year college she is incredibly incredibly smart so when I got into high school she was getting into college so I had started, I needed a path. I needed an outlet. So I went to search and rescue, and I'm sure you worked for a search and rescue team out there, or not worked, for, you knew about the search and rescue teams out there. So they're different than they're here in Florida. There's USAR teams, but also out there they have, every county has its own search and rescue team. And as a teenager, I was, at 14, I started with, the Marin County search and rescue team. I only stayed for a year and a half because I didn't have the discipline and I couldn't, it's funny. I not funny then. It's funny. Now I couldn't pass that first responder course. So I, I just quit the search and rescue team, but the memories I have from it is amazing. I remember so much from it. I did a lot of rope stuff and it just had, really impacted my life more than probably anybody teaching me will ever understand. I also at 14, I started police explorers and I met this police officer. Her name's Patty and she really gave me this positive outlook in life and we'd have a meeting every Tuesday police explorer meeting and we'd go to competitions and uh, academies and different things throughout the year and the things that she would say to me really molded me and helped me as a person I didn't know I would say things like I just tell people oh you're stupid that's stupid oh shut up and she'd sit me down and go Shannon you can't say that to people (laughs) I'm like oh no one's ever told me this you know I'm no one ever really said that. Okay, I won't say that. Absolutely. I'm sorry. And she taught me about respect. And she really, I still talk to her today. And she really shaped me as a teenager to be more positive. And there were things that she would say that I would catch on to and grasp. I'm like, oh, that's how you're supposed to be as a person. Okay. And then, um... My oldest sister, Megan, moved to Hawaii right a year, I think, before I graduated high school. And Melissa and I graduated at the same time. So I graduated high school when she graduated college. So I went down to see her college graduation and her mother, her name's Melanie. So Melanie and my dad were married in the 80s. Melanie adopted Megan with my dad. And then shortly thereafter, Melissa was born. So Melanie is Megan and Melissa's mom. So I wasn't really allowed to talk to Melanie when I was a teenager, just out of respect for Wendy, because there was drama there that was I didn't really want to know about and none of my business as a teenager, even now it's not my business, but they, they didn't get along and... I respected Wendy's wishes and Wendy helped me a lot as a teenager. She drove me a lot of places that I needed to go. And she was the only mother figure I really knew. So when I went to Melissa's college graduation, I really started developing this relationship with Melanie. And I was like, wow, she's really nice. And Melissa's like, yeah, my mom is an awesome person. (laughs) And I was like, really? I'd never heard this before. Yeah. So
0: well, you got a skewed perspective. Very skewed. <laughs> oh, my
1: goodness. So, I was also having a really hard time at 18. I didn't want to follow my dad's rules. I wanted to be my own person. So, I left California. I wanted to explore my world. So, I left with my boyfriend at the time and moved to North Carolina, to Charlotte. Just... Needed a fresh start, get out of a bubble, and became a veterinary technician. And, um, excuse me, then he wanted to go to Full Sail, so we moved to Orlando. And that's how I ended up here. My dad and I had a good relationship. We talked all the time. We talked multiple times a week. I could just call him and say, hey, dad, how you doing? Good. Okay, good. I'll talk to you later. Bye. And that was the extent of it. And then I'd fly out to see him. I'd fly out to California every six months to see my family. And they were always like, when are you coming back? And I'm like, I'm just not ready to come back. Like, it's not, I'm not there yet. So the, I had started developing more of a relationship with Melanie at this point. I'd call her and she taught, you know, we talk a lot and it was really cool. I had this nurturing person that I never knew existed and not that Wendy wasn't nurturing, but a nurturing mom is different. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just something that a lot of people miss. And I, I didn't know pe- people that were that kind to you. Again, I didn't know people were, moms were that nice to you. So I broke up with the my ex who I moved down here with in spring of 2009 and june of 2009 i went to visit my father for fathers day and they had had a party at their house they oh, my dad always had parties christmas parties anniversary parties he was uh, he had a lot of friends we had a lot of aunts and uncles you know that were family friends i'd call them aunts yeah, and uncles yeah we had the same yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just very popular and he was funny, he was funny. So this party we had, he had, it was around Father's Day in 2009. And the, we have a picture of us dancing together, my father and I. And he was like, you know, you and your sister, Melissa, like you need to go experience the world. You need to go travel. He was a big traveler, he loved traveling. He went all over the world. So he was going to send Melissa and I to Europe in August. I was all excited. I was like, "Okay, so my, we're gonna, I'm so excited to go see the world." So I came back to Florida, and in July, my my stepmom calls me. Oh, and he... sorry, let me back up. Uh, he was also he had talked me back into coming to Cal, back to California. He wanted me to move back and I was planning to that September and we were going to run the business he owned at that point he owned like six construction businesses not solely construction it was like plumbing electrical all of those all of those trades into one one business so he ran all that all of that and he built that from the ground up and then he had like this cabinet business he wanted me to he wanted to expand it and move up to just north maybe an hour north of San Francisco to open up a shop there and help with that. So I was going to in September and then July of 2009 my stepmom calls me. And she doesn't she didn't call me much. Her we just didn't have we just didn't talk all the time. And she told me that my dad was on a ventilator. And I was like, "What? Why is I was 21." Why is he on a ventilator? And she said that after the party, he, so he was in construction. They had added on to the house. I mean, you talk about those construction people. The houses are always under construction. That was our house. It was always work being done. So he had expanded his bedroom and made a had a big bathroom built. And next to it, next to the bathroom, it had gone into this pond. And... It was a up a hill. So this bathroom was next to this pond. Well, the pond was leaking and it was leaking into the house. And so my dad starts smelling one day and he, he starts getting this cough. And so he he just opens up a wall and it is full of mold. The bathroom is full of mold. And he snored so they had turned my old bedroom, they'd put a couch in there and a TV. Well, in my old bedroom, there was a crawl space that was in the house. So they had to, they had a special, someone come in and test the mold spores in the air. And I don't know exact numbers, but let's say if your mold spores normally are supposed to be below 30 in the bathroom and my old bedroom, which is where he spent most of his time, the counts were over 3,000. The rest of the house, which is where my stepmom was, wasn't that bad. It wasn't over 3,000. It may have been 1,000 or something. But so they had the insurance company put them in an apartment and they had to completely redo the entire insulation of the house. They had to have a team come in and redo the house. So I didn't know about this. I had no idea until she called me and told me he was on a ventilator. I guess he got really sick, and he was a person who never want to go to the doctor. So he went to the hospital, and his saturations were in the 70s, and he couldn't breathe, so they, nothing was working, so they put him on the ventilator. So I flew out immediately. I walked up to ICU, and he had a gown up, and that was really tough. Seeing him, this man that was Italian and a spitfire and nothing was ever wrong to my father's sitting laying there on helpless, like he's having a machine brief for it. it didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, but he was also a smoker for thirty years, three packs a day. And he had quit the summer I came to live with them. So it was really difficult the he then came off the ventilator I had turned 22 at this point I my birthday's in July I don't know if it's the only birthday I've ever had since I've met him that he didn't wish me happy birthday and he was taken off the ventilator for about a week and he was brought down to the next floor and he was doing better but then I mean, my dad was a really popular guy. Everyone wanted to see him. Not many people could see him in ICU, but everyone could see him down here, down at the other floor, so that we weren't wearing our PPE. We weren't, it wasn't there, so he ended up getting worse. And he got septic, went back on the ventilator, and he ended up passing away in August of 2009. So ugh. you know when you talk about you have this this foundation you're on and then the foundation just cracks and it opens up and there's nothing there anymore that's what i felt like after my dad died he was the rock he was the glue to our family he was the reason i wasn't in on the streets now he's gone because he had a compromised immune system because of his smoking and this awful black mold incident. It was just, it was really bad. It was a really bad time. I had, during that month, I'd flown back and forth and I was on a flight back to visit him for the third time in the hospital and the lights had flickered. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. And you know, flights light lights flicker all the time in airplanes, but it was like noticeable. And I looked at the time, it was like three something in the afternoon. While well, the flight landed, and Melanie came and picked me up. And I look at her and I goes, Is he alive? Is he okay? And she goes, No, honey. He's not. And I screamed and I collapsed in the parking area where they come pick you up where pe- your family comes and picks you up and I just I stood on the back on the ground just crying Melanie was like look let's go let's go see your sister let's go let's go be with family and so we drove back and I was with my sister and my uncles and after he passed and I had stayed in California for a couple weeks i had asked for leave of absence from my job and to be around family and I came, it was difficult because all of a sudden my family was divided and we had, he, at his funeral, he had over 500 people there. He had a lot of people there and every, he had about six or seven best friends and they all went up there and talked and talked about being his best friend. they were like, no, I'm his best friend. And it, it was something um, he he wasn't a planner so he had never planned to pass away so he had written this will and it had 50% goes to Wendy the other 50 is split between the three girls and I was and it wasn't notarized or something wasn't signed so it didn't count so melissa tried fighting for every something um during probate and i really learned the difference between a will and a trust and how important it is to have a trust spend a little extra money to have a trust um i came back here to orlando and i realized there's nothing for me in California. I'm going to build my life here because Melissa, we were all dealing with the battle of losing the foundation everyone had. And it was really hard afterwards. I'd go to pick up my phone to call my dad. And then, uh, you're like, I can't. I just, okay. I had no one to call. I'd call Wendy. Her phone was always off. Um, We were dealing with, Melissa was, helping with the company someone had to run the companies because he still had employees and still had things to do so she was trying to run this company in her mid-20s and she was receiving help from one of our uncles and it was a a big fight I didn't want to have to deal with and I commend her every day sorry hope you can take that out (laughs) (laughs) no, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I um so I started talking to Melanie a lot, and Melanie would answer my calls, and she was there for me, and she would help me out with my struggles every day and two thousand nine two thousand and ten was bad. I was in a dark place i had I was going to school and college and i went was going to class one day and didn't have much money and really didn't have any money and i looked over and i was like i've gotta figure something out with my life i don't know what it is i gotta figure something out so i look over and the standard students at Seminole state were on the fire grounds so you know i did police explorers when i was a teenager i went through search and rescue maybe that's what i need to do because i didn't want to be a police officer I think I had too soft of a heart. Not that police officers don't have a softer heart, but I was. People can take advantage of me when I was in my mid 20s and my young, my early 20s. And I just didn't think that was the career for me. So I, I was like, maybe I should go to fire school. So I enrolled in EMT school and standards. So again, I had no money. Melanie helped me through fire school she helped me through EMT school and EMT school you can get loans for but fire school is all out of pocket there's no there's not a loan for it there's not a grant for it if there's a grant I didn't know about it actually I got $600 off my tuition because I wrote a little bit of this story to them and I said you know I've been in foster care and I wrote an essay and they gave me it was awesome so Melanie helped me every month and she helped me pay for fire school and I was still in a dark place at that time. I'd wake up, you know, when you wake up, maybe you don't know, but when you go through trauma, so much trauma in your life, you deal with a lot of inner demons and a lot of issues. So your trust issues aren't there. You're, you don't think everyone's just going to leave you because that's kind of what's happened a lot in my life. Everyone just leaves to their fault or not. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd wake up and I had already been crying, but I was asleep. And it took a long time to get over that after my father's death. So I went to EMT school and then I started volunteering with Orange City fire department it was awesome. It was really good. I didn't, I didn't tell my story. I stopped telling my story before I went to EMT and fire school. Or I was really cautious on who I said it to. Because you get comments about it that n- no, they don't want to hear that. Why do they want to hear that? You know, everyone's been through struggles. Why do you want to? You get a lot of negative comments. When you get a lot of negative comments, you shut down. So... And they wouldn't ask. They, you know, go there and they wouldn't ask me. So do you have, a, you know, where are you, where are you from? Where's your, they asked me where I was from. I say San Francisco, but you know, where you, what's your family like? They never asked. So I never said anything. It was a little bit easier and I could, I was able to go to a place that I could start being myself again. And I could relate to these citizens because we run on them on their worst day. Of their life and I may not have had been in their position but I've been and I've had plenty of bad days in my life so I could I could at least relate to them so I got hired with Orange County and went through orientation I've been with the them for nine um, eight and a half eight and a half years now it's been great the I started off at a small station, and I decided to go to a much busier station.
0: Which, which one did you start with, and then which one did you go to?
1: I went to Taft.
0: Oh, oh 73, that was my first one. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was my, actually, when, when we first met, because I was at 70. You were at 70, I yeah. was so miserable at 73, it was so <laughs> slow, I begged chief. <laughs> um reggie price yeah begged him and then one of the, my classmates left and they moved me over to 70 yeah oh i was crawling the walls
1: <laughs> it was we had some good calls like you didn't have very frequent calls but we had some good calls but we ran a lot with you at on rescue. you were on rescue seven yes so um then shortly after i got my career situated i was i was happy um i've built my own foundation, and a lot of this motivation that I had was because I never wanted to be homeless again. I'm driven by that fear of being homeless again. I've been there, and I don't ever want to go there again. It's scary for me. So then one day, you know, throughout the years, I had been searching for my mother, and just couldn't... She just disappeared. I just... Some people I... When they asked me, I actually told them that she had died because it was easier to tell them that than the truth that I don't know where she is. How do you not know where your mom is? I don't know. You want to try looking her up? I don't... I can't find her if you can. Facebook's down. Yeah. She did not exist on any platform on the internet, including her her social security number. I had everything. And it just... Like she had disappeared when I was 14. So... But as I was looking... I found her to have this really weird last name of Diaz. So, like, what is that name? I said, you know what, my little brother's name is Zarlo. Maybe that's his last name. So, I googled Zarlo Diaz and I found him. I found him on Facebook. So, out of respect, I stalked and figured out who his who his dad was, and I, I, um, Facebook messaged messaged his dad. I said, hi, this is, I think I have the right person. I might be his older sister. Within 20 minutes, it was, he replied, it was instant. We've been searching for you. They had been searching for me under Shandara, God, not crazy. under my new name.
0: Because how would they know?
1: They had no idea. Because yeah. my mom made sure to make sure there were holes and gaps in letting us find each other she was really good at that
0: that's crazy that she was so good at that and if she'd applied that energy to other areas she might have been able to better her own life
1: Mm, no i just yeah yeah she was a good manipulator but in odd ways not in good ways (laughs) at all so mind you my older brother i haven't talked about him a bit he just I just kind of gave I got to a point where I just accepted the fact that if he wants to be in my life, he's just going to choose to be in my life and I'll always accept him whenever he's ready. And he was on drugs at this point. He's today he's still currently on drugs and I'm pretty sure he's on heroin in the streets I, in LA. I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a couple years, but he'll he's always come back around, so hopefully he'll come back around. So Chad, one day, it was I was twenty. I was twenty six, and he posted this picture on Facebook, and it was a him and I, and I was below the age of six. And I go, "How?" Did, I said, Chad, "How did you get this photo? Like, where did this come from? I've I've never seen a picture of myself below the age of six ever. I'd." This is the first time, where is this coming from? And he's like, Oh, our uncle Rob contacted me. Here's his number. I was like Whoa. Like my my mother's brother, this family in Alabama that by the way I had been searching for. For years I'd searched for this family. I didn't know my mom had changed her name so many times, I didn't know what her real last name was. And no idea. The the social security number without again, I didn't hire a private investigator and have the money to pay for anything to find her so I called found my uncle Rob and I said this is Shandara and he goes Shandara we've been searching for you for 20 years we have been pulling our teeth out trying to find you and I said well my dad legally changed my name when I was when I moved with him to Shannon so it's probably why you couldn't find me but they had been searching for me for tw- and they never stopped they found Chad by they found an old cell phone bill from 1999 and I'm 32 now so it was 6 years ago they found this old cell phone bill and there was this odd number on it and it had my my brother's father's phone number so they said let's call this and it was still his number wow so chad to that tightly didn't they <laughs> yeah they had gone to that length to it was amazing they had tried to find chad you know, they've been trying to find both of us for this long so i talked to him and i talked to my aunt my aunt jennifer and found out i had all these <laughs> the, i had these two three cousins and it's like wow, I have this whole family that I've just been searching for. So I have a we had a huge family reunion and it was cool. It was went to Alabama and I drove up there and met them all for the first time again in 20 years. And I met my cousin who I have great childhood memories with. And again, he was one of my outlets for something positive in my life when home life just wasn't what it should be. And I met him again, and I have this amazing family in, <laughs> in Alabama now. It was, it was really awesome. So then, they, and then they tell me the truth a little bit more about my mom. And again, I can't find my mom at this point. They're like, look, if you ever find her, don't tell her. We don't we don't want anything to do with her. I was like, wow. And I guess she had, re- she had caused such a havoc on them and their lives that they were like, we just don't want to deal with it anymore. Like, she can live her life. We're going to live ours. And that's just how it's going to be. And whether I take things with a grain of salt of what people tell me, because I'm never actually there, that she was diagnosed with multiple issues. One was schizophrenia. One was multiple personality. These are in the seventies, the eighties that they really don't know. So she could be schizophrenic and I don't know. It could be the drugs. It could be the alcoholism. I don't know. She, she's not very truthful when it comes to this stuff. So I said, okay, so at that point, when I met that family, it was like my life had come together. I was happy. It was, it, was, it was really awesome. I found this family that I just wanted to connect with. So I know I keep saying that, but I was just excited. So a little bit goes by, and then I get another message on social media. Hey, this is Deanna's adopted mom. They, I don't know how they found me. They found me. We want to, we think your sister's ready to meet you. When are you going to be in California next? I was like, my little sister, the one that I had one phone call (laughs) conversation with, they found me. Oh my gosh, it was, no, they had, I'm sorry. They had contacted Zarlo's dad and Zarlo's dad contacted me and gave them my information. So that was, it was really cool. It was, I have these, all these siblings. And so we went out, I went out to California. I met Deanna and she was, she's so fortunate. She lives with this woman who took care of her. She took her in as a, she's going to, as a foster baby, brand new baby, newborn, and decided to adopt her. And I'm so thankful Deanna went in that route because I, my mom just couldn't, can't take care of children. I'm also thankful that we're all still here. And she chose to go that, that route. So Deanna hasn't met my mom's side of the family yet. I don't, you know... I told her whenever she's ready we can. Zarlo has Zarlo's met my mom's side of the family. His dad is amazing too. That I mean my mom just had babies with great dads, I guess. It sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was awesome. So so then I went so back to the fire department I went to 42 which is in Pine Hills and very busy station
0: very busy station (laughs) one of the busiest it is
1: and I was driving the engine that day and I backed in and got out I was in the bay and I looked at my phone and I had this social media message from this lady in New York and she was a minister I forget what she was she's like "Hi, your mom's ready to reach out to you she's been sober for two years now and I remember I sat down in the bay and I just started crying and I was I didn't I didn't know what to say I was speechless I didn't did I want a relationship with my mom I don't I don't know so I I just asked if she's okay and I said I'm and she, the lady's like yes here's her number never called her and I didn't reach out because uh, it was just really hard for me to do that and I shortly after became pregnant with my first child so I wanted to focus on that a little bit and it was a pretty difficult pregnancy. I was just sick all the time. And I don't think blood was going to my brain too much. So I didn't have the brain capacity (laughs) to deal with that. So then maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, she, my mom gets on social media and I started asking her some questions. I wanted answers. Would they have helped me today? I don't know. And the answers I received were as I expected to be not truthful. Or if they were truthful, they were truthful in her mind, but not the reality that I saw. So I've chosen to not have a relationship with her. It's too difficult. And I really want to focus on my children and focus on to that they don't live the life that i ever lived so that's my story
0: well firstly thank you for telling your story because i mean as we said before that the human element is what we don't hear
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: and then you know they'll look at you oh you're a firefighter what's it like being a female firefighter you know and, and as we said before we were recording that's still so two-dimensional. It's like what we're seeing at the moment now with you know with the the, the race issue. It's mm-hmm. still two-dimensional. Um, every single person is a human with their own story. So um, I want to kind of go way back first to um, the. You mentioned the garbage bag, yes. and that's something that they talked about at Kimberley Center when I did the interview there. Mm-hmm. Um, that they make sure that they have a stock of. Backpacks and you know just a normal looking bag that a child would have for them to put their stuff in, because as you said, you go to a stranger, they hold a trash bag out and tell you "I mean, you don't know, you know if they're going to throw everything away." So, um, just tell me about that particular moment. Like you know, why it's so important for people to address that issue, that transition from being taken from the family to going into a foster care.
1: I think at that age, I was alone in the world at that time. It was just me. And we sit here and say all the time that children are resilient, but they may seem like it then, but we're not. That really has stuck in my head how important it is to have the understanding for the kid, for the child, because they don't know you. The only thing they know in the world is their parents or that time was the only thing I knew was my mom and she wasn't coming back. And this strange place I was in and then all my stuff was going into garbage. I was taught that stuff just get thrown away. I thought you think that you're going to get thrown away and you're going to get lost. You have no idea what is next. You don't know what the plan is next. And it was really traumatizing until I reached the foster family that I was with, the two sisters. And I pray no one has to go through that. No child should have to go through that. The these, these children are, they may not respond to you because they're so traumatized, but what you're saying, they're taking in, I promise I remember a lot of things that were said to me, a lot of negative things, and I remember a lot of positive things. And to this day, I'll think back to those those positive things and remember that there's good out in this world. It doesn't always have to be bad. I promise they're listening. It, it will affect them later.
0: Yeah. Well, we were talking again before we start recording, and this has always been, you know, a... Uh, an issue I have with the first responder community. Some of it, I think, is from the job, the burnout element. But, you know, it, this is, as you said, this is a job where you have to be compassionate. You know, I love that phrase, they say, walk softly, carry a big stick, whether you're a police officer, or, you know, a soldier, whatever it is, you know, you've got to have that compassion and that, you know, ability to protect. And I've seen it firsthand, the nauseating, judgmental first responder that refers to a homeless person as a bum. I've literally seen people, like, kicking a drunk guy on, you know, get up, buddy, get up, and and not even checking to see if the person's even alive, you know, and the same with, with the kids, you know, or, or, you know, prostitutes or, you know, whatever it is. They're, they're given a, a label, and it dehumanizes them, almost in the same way that, you know, murderers do. They don't want to get to know the person. That way they can, you know, separate them. So as a responder now you know what do you how do you educate your peers to remind them that these are human beings and have been many times placed in a situation they didn't ask for
1: so i will say i'll just start i have been there where i've been burnt out i was burnt out at 42 i was tired running all these calls and my idea of an emergency is different than someone else a citizen's idea of an emergency so I've been at both places I've been in the burnout where I do label these people but I've also been and am now at brought myself back to the ground and go no these are people and I think it's something difficult to educate first responders with I believe it starts with doing it so I just recently became a paramedic
0: congratulations by the way thank you <laughs> i
1: have a great husband to thank for that so supportive so on I start running these calls because I work on a suppression you know I work on a squad so I don't transport as a medic but I'll take overtime to make sure I do transport and I don't lose those skills and I'm make sure that I'm comfortable enough with it so during these rescue rides I have people who are a lot young not a lot younger I'm not that old um, who are younger newer in the fire service and the medic always tends to take the lead on medical calls so I will and I'll just be patient and I've had multiple people after the call go how do you have that much patience for the person and I I think it also helped having kids. I said, I just talk to them and I just understand. And they just, some people in this world just want to talk and they just want someone to sit there and listen. And if you, if they're at a 10 and you stay at a two, the call goes much better. The citizen's happier. You're happier. It, you can figure things out. It took me to get burnt out to come back down to understand Okay, these are people. These are mothers, they're fathers, these children. I've never really been burnt out with children. I will say the just being there as a teenager and as a young child, I've talked to a lot. And if they're gonna dismiss me, they're gonna dismiss me. Maybe that one will remember what I said. So that's how I've taken it and I can't change the world by myself. But I can change one person's life. So every call we go on, even if it's not my emergency, it's not what I my idea of an emergency, they think it's the worst thing in the world. So be understanding and understand that they just on a different level. They have different experiences and that's okay.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that's it. It's understanding that there's far more to the story yes you know i mean perfectly example let's take whoever runs on your brother next chad yeah you know to some he's gonna be oh it's just a junkie yeah well reverse engineer back to the first few formative years he had you two took two very different directions but you know obviously the security and the mentorship that you found in yours was able to lift you up whatever happened on his journey the group homes maybe send him a different way so the result on that day is you know he's unconscious with a needle hanging out of his arm you know maybe you know wherever it is and people are going to walk up and get roll their eyes and be like what a waste of narcan or whatever snide comments will be we'll go back to that vulnerable little child that's what you have to remind yourself as a responder is there a reason i've had people ask me oh you know how many times do you give narcan before you just don't bother anymore and i'm like what the fuck are you talking about you give Narcan every single time, and you just pray to God that person will have that epiphany, or someone come, will say something kind that will or take them under their wing and pull them out of that dark place. But those those addictions are from trauma. They don't, you know, dream of being an addict when they're in kindergarten.
1: Yes, they are. Really, they really are. You you hit the nail on the head. It these addictions are awful. It takes them being hitting rock bottom to come back up to realize. And maybe when you're there, you're seeing their rock bottom. We don't need to make their life any worse. It's already pretty bad. So I do think about that a lot. I feel like he's on in LA and I'm, on, you know, how many times has my brother been Narcan? And I said, you know, I think I'm, are those first responders treating him right? Probably not. And I look and I'm like, they're treating him the same way. And I'm like, that's my brother. I know he has said some pretty mean things to me, but he was also there for me when he was my outlet, when things were really, really bad. So I still love him. And I don't want anyone treating him poorly just because he has his disease. It's really hard to think about.
0: Yeah. Well, like, I, okay. I had a guy, Johan Hari, on the show who I can't wait to do another interview with him. He's an incredible... And he's written a couple of books. One's called "Chasing the Scream," the other one's called "Lost Connections," and it completely highlights how addiction is a mental health issue, and then how loneliness is the subtext of you know, depression. And you know, today, as we're recording this, um, you know, we lost someone in, in a new circle that I joined. Um, you know, from from a mental health battle that they lost, and. the fact that we have these broken children that are now adults or still children that can't seek help because we've demonized addiction. We've, you know, we've made it, we've forced it into the streets Yeah. instead of like uh, Switzerland or Portugal. I talk about them all the time and I'm not going to start talking about until we see change, but those men and women get funneled into addiction programs and job creation and counseling. So they don't have a homeless crisis. They don't have an addiction crisis anymore. Their jails aren't full of addicts. The court system isn't blocked up so that you have to wait a year just to be seen. You know, so we have failed so many, you know, children and or adults now in this country, and we beat our chests and talk about you know best nation in the world. Well, if men and women are dying in streets because they came back from Iraq or Afghanistan broken, or because they were abused as children and never have you know found themselves amongst these kind people that you talked about then what a disservice Uh, and i think we can't hold our heads high until we address these issues
1: absolutely i i think it comes with education and us telling them telling these stories to to make a change it really does and these you know we run on these people that they are we do give them narcan and they are addicted one thing i i hope first responders don't forget is behind that person that is laying in the street laying wherever with the needle out of their arm they could have a kid and that if it's a woman that mother that is the prostitute that is on drugs she if you're mean to her don't forget she could go home and take it out on her kid because she had a bad day and she's high on something there's more people that you're affecting than just her
0: Mm -hmm. well to illustrate the area that that we both worked in i think i told you a story before we start recording i think um one of the saddest memories i have of my entire career my entire life is we got called to Um, you know, uh, I don't even know what the call came in as if it was a cardiac arrest or, you know, whatever it was. But anyway, when we got there, it was a young lady that had been found dead in a dumpster in OBT, our very, very shitty area of Orlando. And, uh, she was a prostitute and one of our friends went and, you know, she checked. She was the medic that day and came back and I'll never forget. We just went to our conversation. It was the end of, end of our shift. I think it was about to be shift change. And it suddenly struck me. I'm like, how fucking awful is that? That that was so normal that we barely skipped a beat. That this young woman is dead in a dumpster and she did the, you know, the the um, no obvious signs of, of life. or no signs incompatible with life. And then that was it. Called it and went and got breakfast. And that is how bad this crisis is. That medics that work in these urban areas like we do see it so much. Whereas there is probably, I hope there's people listening in other parts of the country, other parts of the world that are horrified by that because that's not normal. People shouldn't be dying of overdose. And this was a murder, I believe. I think she was strangled and then just thrown in there probably by oh. a pimp or a john or whatever. But that's another side. The illegal yeah. prostitution that we have here is driving these already addicted, desperate women into even more dangerous uh, areas.
1: Absolutely. That's what my my mom, when she... she- contacts me she'll tell me these long stories and it reminds me that she tells me she in New York she lived by dumpsters and she slept outside all the time and was raped and she was just so addicted to drugs and when you said that dumpster I'm like oh that that could have been my mom like The person that gave me life could have lost her life because she didn't seek help. I don't, we didn't, we failed her. I don't, I don't know. She failed herself. I don't,
0: Yeah. I don't know. Well, and that's, that's the thing. So people argue those two extremes. Yeah. Did we fail her? Did she fail her? But it's obviously, it's, it's a bit of both. And that's the thing. Like right now, these, these people on these two extremes arguing, Mm -hmm. Well, the middle ground is let's freaking fix it. And it's not just, you know, let's say, for example, this awful George Floyd murder. You know, there's a lack of training. There's, you know, was the officer involved actually a hateful human being? You know, it certainly seemed like it. But there's so many systemic issues. You know, the addiction problem, our prison systems. I mean, all these things that, that have to be addressed. And if you just pick a side and argue it, no one's getting better. You
1: have to fix the issue. Yes,
0: exactly. So, you know, like you said, you know, it could have been your mother, it could have been you. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you'd gone to an abusive foster home, which we hear about as well,
1: absolutely your
0: path could have been way worse. And so I think what really struck me about your story, and I hope people really kind of pull this out, was you met you were met with incredible kindness and compassion by that police officer in the yeah. diner. Mm-hmm. Kudos to them wherever they are, yeah. by the the amazing foster family you found, mm-hmm. by a biological dad by your biological father's ex-wife. Yeah. I mean, all these human beings that really had no allegiance to you and your, you know, DNA lineage, if you want to put it that way. No, you're right. Were, were what lifted you up. Mm-hmm. And here you are now, a squad tech in, you know, in a, in a very, very revered fire department, mm-hmm. a mother, uh, you know, a wife, and every single person had a part of that. And I think it really illustrates... That kindness can, you know, override hate and neglect and fear, but people have to believe it and they have to be the change. They have to reach out and look for the ones that hurt and pull them up.
1: It starts with you. It starts with me. I have to change. And when I change, I can help someone else. Maybe they'll see it. It's true. It's It's been a difficult road, but fear has motivated me to not be homeless and I want to make something of my life I don't I didn't want to be 60 years old and go what did I do I don't remember half my life I want to make something of myself and I want to change at least one person's life it doesn't have to be again. I can't change the world but maybe if one foster kid hears it and goes oh I can I can be better I don't have to be what all these people are telling me I I'm going to be all these, you know, you're never going to go anywhere. You, you just, you're just going to stay in the system. This is the path. No, be better than that. Be the better person starts with you and then people will follow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm mm-hmm. I, I just re- reminded of all the, I mean, as a Rolodex of guests I've had on the show now. Yeah. Far more than you would ever think had really shitty childhoods whether it's sexual abuse domestic abuse around you know addiction um but so many that ended up doing incredible things went through foster systems too some had good experiences some had bad experiences Mm -hmm. but um i just had a english policeman who's retired now who's who's special ops pretty much everything you can do in the police force um and he went through all kinds of stuff and had good foster experiences and, and bad ones and um then uh, Sabrina Cohen Hatton, who is one of the highest chiefs in the British Fire Service now, she was homeless. And uh, wow. you know, it was funny when you're talking about eating at school. That's why she went to school. Yeah. It wasn't that she was driven so much academically, but <laughs> yeah. it, she's like, that's where people are kind to me. I'm around people and I yeah. can eat.
1: Oh, it gives me chills. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, um, and then uh, God, who was, I think, someone else as well that was ringing a bell. It's kind of falling out of my head now. But anyway, that's it. That not only. With, did they have ownership? Did they refuse to believe that the story that appeared to be written for them was the one they were going to allow to play out? Mm-hmm. But they ended up doing incredibly well and seeking out these protector roles. I think that's what the common denominator is, is a lot of these people that had these really awful childhoods wanted to be part of the solution. So they wanted to be the protector. They were tired of being the victim.
1: Yeah, it was. it's exhausting being the victim. And I never want to tell my story for someone to feel sorry for me because I think that I've experienced everything to make me who I am today. I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. I want people to learn from it and not not do it, yeah. not do it anymore. Let's stop. Sometimes, you know, you talk about the abuse. You People don't know they're being abused. Kids don't know they're being abused. They truly believe that this is normal, this is what every parent does. My friends at school get this. This is completely normal. And when you're sent through those roller coaster of emotions and then you go to a place where you're not abused and someone goes, no, Shannon, that's that's not normal. Mm-hmm. You You were abused. Oh, so you're not going to hit me every night? Like it's, oh, this is... That's what normal people do. They don't understand that until they're told or shown that. And again, you you hit it that these people don't, these kids don't need to be biologically yours. There are lots of people in my life that changed my life who I have no relationship to. And if we just stay positive for these kids and help them, any way we can say something nice to them, I don't care. Say hi, notice them, talk to them. We'll get a lot more, a lot further in this world and better people in this world just by being kind, even if they're mean to you, even if they say something mean to you. You don't need to say something mean back. Just you walk away or or say something kind to them. Be, be the bigger person. You don't mm. need to stoop down to their level.
0: I even tag out. I've had it where I mean it's nauseating, but I've I've been the super kind, compassionate one, and the patient's been a complete dick.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I tag off like, "Well, you go have a word." And they happen to be the same color or whatever as this patient, and they're they're cool as hell with them, even though that person was laughing at them the whole time. Yeah, you know what I mean so sometimes you've also got to go. You know what? Someone else want to try this. Someone else. Because I'm not gonna yeah. get. I'm not gonna let them wind me up. But I'm done. No. So my whole thing is, if I was pissed off in the rescue, for example, I just sit in the captain's chair mm-hmm. and just not say anything. I wouldn't get wound up. But if you're going to be a douche, then we'll just tap out there. I'll wheel you into the ER.
1: It's sometimes anything best not to say anything.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, but you you kind of reminded me of a, a thought through my career. Um, Chief Brunacini and the whole customer service philosophy. Yeah, you know, I I mm-hmm. get it. You know. You, we're not just going to kick in a door, put a fire out, and just walk away. You know, we we do the good overhaul. We you know we try and pull people's stuff out from fires, and you know, yeah. just you know, comfort a child at a, a car scene. But it, especially you know, where we used to work, I almost saw like a sway too far the other way. Where now you're installing smoke alarms and doing this, and being super nice to these you know seemingly normal people, but treating. People on the streets like shit. Well, maybe that customer service should be swayed more to the people that truly need that kindness and compassion. I'm not saying I'm being rude to other people because they've they got, you know, things going for them. Mm-hmm. But do we need to go and install a smoke alarm? Or maybe we should actually work, as some departments do very well, and focus on the most desperate. So that maybe we can help, you know, connect them with whatever addiction or counseling element, homeless shelter, to maybe start getting some of these people off the streets rather than just shifting them from district to district, going, not my problem, not my problem.
1: Absolutely. They're just pawning pawning them off because they don't want to face the reality of it. We have to face the reality of it. and We have to face that we have a huge problem. And there's plenty of articles that talk about how first responders are the starting point for addiction, sex trafficking, abuse, and there needs to be a lot of focus on that because maybe this prostitute is actually being trafficked. They don't understand it. They don't. They don't know what it is because they. think This is normal. And when you educate them that no, this is not normal, you need to maybe go get a life. And they feel stuck. There should be options for it. Education is so important. But it's it's also up to us to seek it out. It's up to everybody, leadership, the lieutenants, to the chiefs, the captains, to educate those who are coming into the fire service and go, look, these are signs of abuse. These are signs of, obviously we know, signs of addiction. But this is how you can help these people instead of throwing them to the wayside mm-hmm. or pawning them off. Yep. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. And the trafficking one, I only really became aware of it a few years ago and had a few people, you know, on that subject. I had one that was trafficked herself and then um a couple from, you know, foundations that are fighting that. To me, Naj was the, the trafficked lady and an amazing powerful story. But i look back in my career now and you know, the areas that I worked prior to my last one were always in the, the most desperate area. I sought that out, that's where the busy stations are. And I love that because I felt like you were that kind person, you know, when, I mean, you know, it's like you go in OBT yeah. and gangbangers and, you know, prostitutes and all this, they'll wave to us. They don't wave mm-hmm. to the police, of course. It's a different relationship. Yeah. But we're it. When something goes bad, we're the ones that you are there. I mean, I've had, you know, multiple gang victims from gang fights, you know, and and, and prostitutes and, and all these, these labels that we use. But these, these men and women that find themselves in these, awful places we are we're it you might be the last person they see before they pass away or you know they overdose next time whatever it is so i think we need to educate ourselves on understanding signs like you said of trafficking which i never thought about understanding how to how to interact with a patient with down syndrome with Mm, autism i mean all these little nuances rather than some fucking stupid you know (laughs) yeah written oh this is leadership this is the lead you know this academy for your lieutenant test. how about the human elements how about we focus on the people that truly need us and, absolutely and also stop responding to bs <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah and let's focus some of those resources and time that we've learned now you can you just tell everyone the covid's around all of a sudden the bullshit calls go away magically yeah but yeah take those resources and start asking yourself how can we do preventative care in the community
1: yes, and the 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 bullshit calls they are so in our minds absolutely bullshit, but in their minds is it were they brought up that way, or were they brought up that you call nine one one for everything so it starts again, it starts young, teaching, okay, if you do this. This is an emergency. This is because some things in our mind isn't an emergency, but maybe in three days, oh, they really were having an issue. The hospital, they stayed at the hospital for three days and the hospital found this issue, but initially we don't see it. And it starts with the education of when to call 911, when not to call. Not You should never not call 911, I guess, because that that leaves a person that i'm having chest pain i don't want to call them i don't want to bother them you know i'll just i'll just wait it out and then ends up passing that we don't want that we we want the you jam your finger it hurts for a minute but it'll you'll be okay those are the types of bs calls that we we want to make sure that you're going to be okay promise from a jammed finger yeah, and top. I think
0: that that's the problem. So I see because of course there's those gray areas, and Very you know gray. I've been on eighteen year old with chest pain. I never forget the crew were rolling their eyes, and I I have to say I'm I'm not a was never great at any one element because we're jack of all trades. I Absolutely. wasn't the the great you know the medic. There are people were like oh he was mm-hmm. amazing with this, or I just I made myself as good as I could be. But I was never complacent. I can hands on my heart I can say that, and so I treated this like. You know, we'll see. And actually, I think it was it was 18. I think she was 16. But it was at the local high school. And she had um, some sort of cardiac issue when she was tiny. So, she had a um, a pacemaker oh. since she was a child. The pacemaker just lost his shit <laughs> and started pacing her at like 200. Wow. So, yeah, she did have chest pain. It was completely legitimate, you know. Absolutely. So, those are those calls. You've got to be careful. But the yeah. problem is we have this lawsuit mentality where... It's become just send everyone to the hospital, it partly is. because the hospitals make money that way. Because mm-hmm. I have no medical directors that would say just send them
1: mm-hmm. because
0: we want their business kind of thing, which is wrong as well. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is if that one in a million has that, you know, that bleed and everything they said and presented was, was nothing to do with that, that's not on the first responder either Mm-mm. so you can't send everyone to the hospital on that one case where one person yeah you know that's that's life happens as well so you have to adjust accordingly and if it comes in i sprain my ankle you know then that's an omega response well that's sorry sir you know would you you know we can send you an uber or whatever but yeah. that's not an, a 911 emergency call Absolutely. but if you have chest pain and it's not because you just dropped you know your bench press on your chest yeah. or whatever <laughs> Then, yeah, let's err on the side of caution and take you to hospital.
1: Absolutely. So I, th- I think it does start with the, the education. Educa- my father was huge on education and adamant about it. And he made sure... I wanted to drop out of high school so bad. And he made sure I was going to stay because I was going to get that high school diploma. And he... I'm so thankful he did because now I really understand the importance of it because we'll run on these... We'll we'll run these calls and I'm like, gosh, didn't you go to high school? Like what, where did you, when did you learn this? And they may have dropped out at ninth grade, eighth grade. So getting into those early years of people to make sure we mold their, mold their minds to the, to the right path Mm -hmm. really, really helps because it sticks with them. It may not seem it right away, but it does. Yeah. It really does.
0: No, absolutely. And like you said, you know the the memories you have is I mean, it's, when you look back how young you were and however those memories are <laughs> so of did, the bad yeah. things and the good things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that people have a choice. Do You want to leave a bad memory in someone's life, or or be part of the you know the positive that that led them out of the darkness into the light.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's the the choice of being a firefighter was was pretty easy one because again, I I said earlier, I can relate to a lot of these people, but I also didn't have a lot of trust in people. So I wanted to know everything I could know so I don't get hurt. Uh, Which is also part of the reason I became a squad technician to get higher education in the fire service because I didn't want to be a frontline person going into something because someone told me I could, and it was actually really dangerous, but I didn't know that. So I've realized the importance of the education and my senior firefighter on the squad, um, is back at 42. He, Eric, we were together, Sienna, Eric, Sienna and I, we were, we had many, many talks out in the bay. I was on the rescue in between calls and we'd talk throughout the night cause he would stay up, you know, until two, three in the morning and. He really shaped my career and the fact that he, he always said, look, people are going to tell you something and it may not be the most accurate thing. So you always double check it, double check it. So he would tell me something about a tool and then it would be incorrect. And he would do it on purpose because he knew I would go look it up because I didn't trust him. I didn't believe him. I go look it up. I go, "Eric, you're wrong. This is this is what this says." And he goes, "I know I was wrong. I was just telling you."
0: Either he was a really good teacher or he was full of shit. <laughs> yeah, I know, right?
1: <laughs> no, he he did that on purpose and it it really shapes people to understand the importance of reading things and going back to the source and getting that education, understanding All four sides of the story, because you can't just look at one side. Same thing with rumors. You can't believe a rumor. Go to the source. Were you there? Did it happen? If you weren't there, then stop. And there's four sides, three sides, 16 sides to a story. You need to understand everything to grasp the situation. I really think it helps people. If they understand that, it helps people grow as a person, too. And as a first responder, these if they understand that they're only seeing one side of the world for running these calls and there's a whole backstory and they understand the why, it makes, I feel like it makes some of these guys' jobs easier. Because they'll go back to the station, they'll complain and they'll get mad. It's like, no, no, no. This is the backstory. This is why this has to happen. And they'll be like, oh, okay, okay it makes them I think it makes a better work ethic too makes them feel better everybody feel better we understand the why that things happen
0: yeah well you mentioned Eric so you know the one big part of this project is you know mental and physical health and I just want to you know put it out there to Eric that we're thinking of him because he's you know going through his own struggles at the moment with with uh, cancer and you know, it's awful, as you know, the three-four-three. That's another thing that, that kind of connects us. Yeah, and I've, I've, you know, have the the names of the people that are fighting and the people that we've lost, and yeah, you know, the names of has just grown exponentially, and it's horrendous. So it's you know, it's it's awful seeing these men and women that that have given so much, that work and stay working in these busy, busy firehouses, and then you know their body betrays them like that.
1: Yeah, it's really. It's really difficult and Eric was on the squad for many many years. I actually just recently had a lot of questions as to why are we losing squad techs?
0: Lots of them. I think I think the original isn't almost all the original squad guys died.
1: There's there's a bunch left that we had a there's a picture I don't know exactly how many, but there's a bunch that have passed away. And then in the last 10 years, the people that were on duty diagnosed and were able to return, they've mostly been squad technicians. So why? Why? I have so many questions I want to ask. Why the squad techs? Does it, it... do hazmat technicians around the U S have the same problem. We don't have the Florida cancer. They don't have the answer for that for specifically hazmat. And I'm curious about that because if it's hazmat, is it our PPE selection that's gone wrong in the past? What now we have so much more education. I know we, you know, we used to go to all these fires and we used to go things were not the same. So I have so many more questions for that, but that's that's further down the road. Yeah. I'll well and this. the other
0: thing, you know, we both talked about before is you, know, you were talking about benzene diving, is that what you called it?
1: Benzene diving, yeah. yeah.
0: So, you know, the the gas leaks and even you know, even the not squad. Texts get sent on a lot of those you know the spills are not as big but i mean they're still you know big old spills and we're yeah. over there with are just digging up dirt from the side of the road but um you know the the stuff that we carried in our gear i mean the first 10 years of my career i was very lucky a black cloud saw a lot of fire the last five that department never saw anything so yeah. you know that was a, a dream um but, you know, I think about all the off-gassing all the times, you know. Days later, you're still pulling black snot out your nose oh, and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. And But then, like we talked about, a lot of squads around the country also run a lot of calls because they respond to all the big incidents. Yeah. That are usually, or well, they are certainly are in, you know, 42 and, you know, staged in some very busy areas. So you've got the double whammy of sleep deprivation, the immune system taking an absolute hit adding to the, the higher likelihood of exposure to carcinogens. Yes. And I think, you know, sadly, that's probably what's causing the perfect storm amongst many of them. And then obviously our original squad program is what, the end of the, the 80s, I think?
1: 89.
0: Yeah, so, mm-hmm. you know, that's, uh, that's before we understood a lot of this stuff anyway. So they it were was. being exposed, you know, way more than, than our people now.
1: Absolutely. I think everything we're doing now, I think we'll see a difference in ten, fifteen years. I really do.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, all right. Well I wanted to to go to one more area and then kind of transition to some closing questions. But I think it's it needs to be, you know, discussed. Your early life, you know, the the uh, the fact that your dad wasn't around, even though you know he wanted to be, and then obviously the, the issues you have with your mother. Now you're in this family, you've had children yourself, so what was that like? Not knowing firsthand, really, what a healthy, young childhood looked like, how was it being a mother and, and the, the almost anxiety of, quote-unquote, doing it right when it was your turn?
1: Oh my gosh, I'm glad you asked this question, so it's... <laughs> It has been a challenge. It has been very difficult to be a mother because I'm learning what it's like to nurture. And I know that's hard for some, it's really difficult to explain because you know, the senses of this world says that you get pregnant, you are glowing and you see this baby for this first time and you're, you're instantly love them. I I got, I was pregnant, I wasn't glowing, and I was, <laughs> I was excited I was pregnant, but I don't know how to describe the feeling unless, actually I was talking to steve about it the other day, and he looked at me and he goes, I know exactly how you felt. My son was born in 2016 so he's three and a half now and when I was pregnant with him I was thrown up every day my blood pressure was really low and I was really just sick the entire nine ten months of pregnancy I was really sick so when he was born I had this baby and I, I go that instant love I didn't understand it. I didn't, it was there. I just didn't know how to do that. You it,
0: almost didn't recognize it in yourself. I
1: didn't recognize, I didn't know, oh, this baby, I, I have to find out how to take care of it. That he's going to have a better life than I did. I'm going to make sure of it. Like I was going to be the best mom and I am going to be the best mom I can be. I, I just had to figure it out. Cause I didn't know. So it, took me a while to understand love and my husband changed a lot in my life he put a lot of perspective in how to love each other and how to he wouldn't tell me he would just do it I'm like oh that's how (laughs) that's how you're supposed to be that's okay this makes sense and then he helped me a lot as a mom because he has he has an an older child so I have a stepson and he'd been through this before so I leaned on him a lot on how to take care of my son and he walked me through it and I remember my son was about six months old and mind you my childhood I just had so much negativity I I didn't laugh a lot. Laughing wasn't natural to me, which is, might be weird for some people, but when you don't have those emotions, when you don't grow up with those emotions, it's just not there. So he was tickling my son and I just started to genuinely smile and I just became so happy that I had this family and this man who who's showing me what it's like for a baby to be happy. I'm sure I was happy baby. I'm sure that happened to me too. But um, with, you know, my mom, my uncles, my aunts, I'm sure they made me laugh as well. But to actually see it, that's when I was like, this is, I felt relaxed. I was like, this is what life is supposed to be about. And I am so happy in my life, my kids and my husband mean everything to me. And I want to make sure they don't experience the feelings that I experience. They, they talk about abuse a lot and how people, kids that are abused become the abuser. Or they abuse their own kids or they abuse, you know, they do the same thing that happened to them. And I have just completely the opposite.
0: That's what I hear over and over again. I I almost think that's a kind of myth. And I'm sure it does happen. Uh I'm sure some of these horrible things when you look back. But I think that it can go one way or the other. And I think that so many people that I've had on here have put their foot down and said, no, this this stops here.
1: (laughs) It does. I I really, maybe we just haven't talked about it enough. So the majority is, is that it doesn't, we actually stop it when we are abused. So, so I, I it's challenging to be a mom it's very difficult but at the end of the day I go to bed happy and they're the most amazing things in the world I'm I wouldn't I was actually really scared to have kids because I didn't want them to look at me how I looked at my mom and I know it was different circumstances but now I understand that I can be the best mom I can be, and not hope, hopefully they will never ever be put in a foster home or orphaned like I was, so yeah. yeah
0: no and it is it's it's incredible you know I think that it must have been amazing for you because you realize that here's a here's a blank canvas yeah, and all <laughs> that child knows at the moment is love, they know they need you. Yes, you know that's an it's an inherent thing that we have from mother nature but like you said you just make a face and they start laughing and then your heart melts and you're like shit so then (laughs) your whole goal is like i just need to not screw this up and none of us know what the hell we're doing (laughs) So it's an improvising if you were writing books that's all well and good but yeah you know you take some little nuggets here and there but most of it's just fluff (laughs) Mm, (laughs)
1: fluff. fluff. you know
0: but i can look back at times my little boy just walked in Mm -hmm. when he was a newborn i was at anaheim you know super busy and sleep deprived and then the night he was born my mother-in-law ended up staying the night at the hospital so what was my sleepy bed next to my to his mother was now and she was in it so i was on the floor (laughs) concrete hospital floor (laughs) so by the time he came home he he was colicky and wouldn't stop crying i remember shouting at him shut up shut up his newborn feeling like the world's biggest asshole but i was just like you said the word burnt out you know but but you just fumble your way through and obviously then you catch yourself and realize okay i need to learn how to step away and all this stuff but yeah i mean it is it is a an improvisation but every child is is a blank canvas and you can lead it down a dark path or you can lead it in a good path. But that child doesn't know racism, doesn't know hate, doesn't know homophobia, doesn't know any of these horrible things that we see in the world. So you can give it the path and, and, and uh, like you said, ensure that it never sees the trauma. It'll see trauma. Life will happen. But, you know, that level of trauma or know that home is always back with you. And I think that's a big, big thing.
1: That is the... Oh, I feel like a lot of what I was missing was a stable home, a stable place to be. So I had my, my father at that home and that was my stability. And when he passed away, I had to, I actually had to prove to the courts that I was an orphan to get some school funding. So that was difficult. And I wanted to build my home again. And now I want to make sure my kids, they have a place to go they will never be homeless as long as i am alive because they will always have a place to be i that feeling is is an awful awful feeling and a lot of people in this world experience that especially the people we run on and they're homeless and that feeling is not a good feeling i i can assure you that they don't wake up and go i love sleeping on concrete cuz sleeping on concrete is awful
0: yeah even mm. the shitty cheap beer they have to drink <laughs> I mean, yeah. all, most of us beer snobs out there <laughs> yeah you know you wouldn't want to be you know drinking that you know blue ribbon all the time uh, i
1: know right it's <laughs> not a dream
0: you know but yeah i mean it's it's true and you and you look at the the tribal model of most humans on planet earth they're a tribe they're a group so if someone has a something happen they say it takes a village that's exactly what oh, it takes band a village together. To raise they don't a just fling them out and be like oh well yeah, tough shit we're gonna move on down the savannah now good mm-hmm. luck with life no you know you can't be greedy because that doesn't work in tribalism either you know you can't be hateful or violent i mean the tribe just takes care of each other but how we've come now to me seems so far from the tribalism that seems to work so well in all cohesive units around the world
1: yeah absolutely i don't you know you talked about the racism i where we grew up and growing up in san francisco i didn't i really didn't understand it because i didn't think it existed anymore because they were all everyone's a person out there i shouldn't say it's like here they're not people but like the i never saw it until i moved to north carolina I moved to Charlotte and I was like this still exists why are you guys living in the 1800s it's like this is weird so y'all need to stop this so I want to make a point about that too because yeah it's all about where you grow up we're blank slates right we we the way I grew up just everybody was a person and I had friends and they were just people they weren't I don't know they were different religions they were different races they were men women they were gay straight it didn't matter they were still people and then I had a huge culture shock when I moved to Charlotte because I was like, you guys still say that? Like, why? And I would tell them to stop because I didn't like it. So, yeah. It, and they're just people. They're all people. We're all people. So
0: no, I just, I don't even know how, like how it's learned these days, especially with, you know, the last 15 plus years where you got the internet and you can literally, no matter what you're told, you can Google and, you know, educate yourself. You can be around, you know, one one of the, children of a clan, grand wizard, yeah. and still be in your basement Googling, you know, black people and go, Oh, wait a second, they don't kill and, you know, rape white women all the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe the maybe what I'm being told is bullshit. You yeah. know? But it, like you said Find it's a blank yourself. slate. Yeah. So it's so easy to stop and, and it just blows my mind why you would go out of your way to say, oh, no, those people are different. They're less than us or, oh, those people, they this is how they have sex and it's it's disgusting and, oh, it's against, you know, I was talking to God the other day and he confirmed that, oh, yeah, he doesn't like these kind of people. Absolutely. Heaven's only for the, you know I mean? it just, it's, it's absolute insanity when you think about it and understanding that you can blank slate just like we've been talking about, you can stop that with one cycle. just to show the the idiocracy of prejudice and hate and how the answer is the polar opposite.
1: It is. And I think we may not see it today. We may not see it tomorrow. But the changes that we're trying today, we're going to see in 5, 10 years. We're going to see a difference. And we're going to see a difference with these kids that are growing up now. So change, to me, change doesn't happen overnight. change is something that has to happen within each person and a majority of the people that change they're gonna a lot of people will follow i I think we're we're seeing that now
0: Mm -hmm. it's good yeah and then this medium i I love i mean people are are getting to hear these amazing stories whether it's some of the great documentaries that are on tv now whether it's through podcasts and and you know it's not filtered it's from you know, source to the ear hole and this this particular podcast this a little humble podcast you see us listen to south africa and you know, mm-hmm. nepal and all these weird and wonderful places but that's just it i think people can really get disseminate information now um my whole goal is to get people to question things when they start yes. questioning some of these crazy hateful beliefs that they've been sold yeah that's when they can have an aha moment and and basically save themselves because you're down a horrible path if you're if you got hate you know and your beliefs you're gonna find yourself somewhere pretty shitty at some point so absolutely yeah
1: yeah we don't need that anymore yeah
0: well speaking of um diversity even though i hate that word because it <laughs> focuses on how we look but um we've got the um clincon conference coming up yeah so that's gonna be you steve-o and travis house so i'm looking forward to that awesome. i've never done one either so we're all popping our cherries on that one that'll but. be fun
1: i'm excited <laughs> i'm actually gonna be at the beach that week so i'll be uh streaming from there right
0: awesome yeah, yeah? from wherever yeah, so anyone listening, I I'm hoping this is gonna be out before. Uh, if you wanna ask Shannon or Steve O'Michelle's on the show or Travis Howe's questions, we will actually be doing I don't know how it works yet, but they're setting up some sort of live stream where people can ask us questions too. So I'm excited. That's gonna be a cool dynamic, three different backgrounds and you know, interacting. So
1: it'll be fun. Steve O and I have quite a few things in common, so it's cool to hear his story too.
0: Yeah yeah but yeah, that's it I mean it's not about his skin color it's about that he grew up in you know a complex that I ran on all yeah. the time and you talk my god if you ever have an <laughs> example of don't assume a building is vacant yeah. timber scan is it because it looks boarded up and you know there's there. and there's families moving the plywood out of the way and yep. you know six children go in and then it closes behind them so yeah yeah absolute <laughs> shithole it really <laughs> is there's no other way to describe it and to he, us it
1: is yeah absolutely yep. to them <laughs> It's normal,
0: yeah, but and it shouldn't be. And you know, we no. should, again, we've taken care of those people, but yeah. Bad and then he goes sense. to to college and comes back, joins the fire service, and now protects that same community that he came from.
1: And he just bought a house.
0: oh Yes, he did. Yeah, that's I saw awesome. that. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and then Travis House had to do the body recovery of the Charleston Nine, his close friends.
1: So, I haven't listened. I'll have to listen to it before. Yes, be awesome.
0: Yeah, that's a long podcast, but again, Good. just like you know, you're one. It, it, stories take time to tell you know so they really tell do. them properly
1: and it's all about telling them in the time it, timing to tell them because i think i said it before i would go and tell my story and people look at me and like i don't want to hear that like well, it would make me feel sorry for you okay go go do something and it's like ah just got shut down yeah well and that's the uh, problem yeah. it's
0: basically someone saying i don't want to learn it's it, uncomfortable. I don't want to go to an uncomfortable place. Yeah. You know, and that's it. But what's nice about this medium is people can now go on there. you know, I used to commute an hour and a quarter to most of the fire stations I ever worked at. So you can go to work and back and listen to an entire long podcast. Yeah. You know, and you're on your own now. So no one's judging you, you know, yeah. so you can start getting that. But yeah, I mean, if we, if we shut down people's stories, then we don't learn. And then what if there was a cry for help, too? And now you're burying them instead, you know.
1: It is. We need to start listening more to people, and we need to start understanding their stories. the The rookie, I think it should start at the rookie firefighters. Yeah, we may not care where they come from, but I do, because how can I understand their story to better serve our community? Because I'm a great person to be, occasionally, not all the time, because it gets exhausting. In the lower income areas because I've been there. Yeah. I understand what these people are going through. And maybe I'll move That's kind of why I went to 42. I, I wanted to be there for some people and one of my squad classes, but I think understanding somebody you can build a better uh first responder group.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I've talked about this, you know, one of my Ideas, I'm sure it's not unique, but is to take the money we waste on polygraphs and the psych evals that we have to do and put it into a counseling session Do your background check, find out if you actually want this person. That should be enough, you know, and don't, I mean, it's polygraph is smoke and mirrors. I researched it, realized it was all bullshit, <laughs> passed yeah. it three times, and it wasn't like I was a horrible person, but I couldn't be honest about the fun stuff I'd done when I was young, that mm-hmm. had no detriment to my life whatsoever. Because again, the stigma around, you know, illicit drugs. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, and so you're talking about the, you know, the new higher class, put them through two or three counseling sessions. Absolutely. If they got not much to offload. Then great. Just talk about yourself. I and mean, we have a rapport. And now you can come to me anytime you feel like you need to talk when you're through your career, but the shannons the stevos the you know whoever you might have a lot of stuff and that might start a process where you continue seeing that counselor for six months as you're a rookie but you're going to be much more resilient we talk about resilient kids i agree with you how can a child be resilient when they haven't even been able to process what they're going through
1: yes you know you're
0: only resilient if you actually manage to come out the other side
1: Mm -hmm. i really think it's interesting to i i just googled a couple things about childhood trauma and the brain scans of an adult that had childhood trauma versus major trauma versus an adult that didn't and it's very different and the same thing with the ptsd a person who has had a lot of pts brain scan you know the elements that they're measuring is all subjective within that that, that study that they're doing but they're very different. Yeah. And you're right, the counseling section, the 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 they need people they need someone to talk to. Everybody needs that outlet. It's really really important. And you know, I don't like to put myself in any different than anyone else, but being a female in the fire service, female in a male dominated field is very difficult. These I had I would find these other female firefighters and I would talk to them, but how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? And they would go, they've been there a while and they would tell me. And I leaned on them a lot. And I think that every new first responder, every first responder needs that person. So these new females that are coming up, we're going to get more diverse. We're going to, more people are going to want to become part of the fire service. We should welcome them with open arms and, You know they have to understand the what the job entails first because it's not easy at all not everybody can do this job if
0: you do it well no
1: (laughs) it takes a special kind of person to do it but that special kind of person needs another person to talk to and I have really tried to reach out to the newer females and talk to them and they're like this is happening why is this happening I'm like oh well this is what I did and this is what made me successful. Maybe it'll help you. And they need someone to talk to. That's all. It just they, to be successful, They uh, guide a, a guidance, a mentor, we can't always be negative. We have to understand everybody.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what I've seen in the worst fire departments. Let me put it that way. And the, the, co- the correlation, I talk about this a lot, is when there was a high bar set at the front door and probation was a year-long crucible you ended up with awesome people and mentorship was built in like they wanted you to succeed but the bar is really high so if you didn't work then you know there's a good chance that you weren't going to succeed but absolutely but then on the really shitty fire departments of to plural uh, singular fire department (laughs) there's a lot of tearing people apart while sitting on a lazy boy with a bag of Cheetos on their guts, tearing people down. You know, all these kids, these millennials, these snowflakes. Well, firstly, you're not exactly fucking Rambo yourself, so I'd call me tits. But secondly, if how do you expect these people to grow if you won't get off your fat ass and go out there and show them? Oh, all they know is electronic. Yeah, they do. Did they grow up on a farm? No, they grew up in urban Orlando. So show them how the chainsaw works. Show them how you want the hose loaded. Show, You know what I mean? But what I see a lot of is guys that know damn well that they're really shitty firefighters so they drag people down to their level rather than being the solution so we as senior firefighters need to be very active mentoring you know the skill side and like you said there's still scales back to that compassion element you you've got to care about your crew i had my my old anaheim crew on and it was a long (laughs) long four and a half hour conversation that. We consumed alcohol, so it got more funny towards the end. But <laughs> yeah. the whole point was they were my crew um, up till 2008. So, you know, when we did the record, I think it was 10 years later. And we were still super tight. That's awesome. But we'd been through some pretty hairy fires together. Two of the four went through some pretty bad PTSD. One of them actually is now just just coming out of COVID. He was pretty sick with that you know, but that's, that's it. You got to train together, you got to, you know, care for each other, you got to work out together. So that human element has to be put into who we run on, and it has to be put on each other. Because that organizational stress, um, whether it's coming from micromanagement from really shitty, you know, chief level, or whether it's kind of pseudo hazing amongst in the departments from a bad place, not from a fun place. That's a big, big contributor to depression and even suicide. And I didn't realize how much it was till some of the more recent guests can illustrate it that, yeah, organizational stress can, you know, can really, really contribute to mental ill health.
1: Absolutely. I mean, these, these people will stay at a busy house only because their crew is the best crew they've ever had. But they'll, they'll beat their bodies down because when they go home to the firehouse, they, they're happy. And they're with this close crew. I think one really phenomenal thing about my department is our recruit orientation. And the most amazing thing about it is the lieutenant in charge of it does an amazing job as far as he really does get to know every single person at graduation, they're all given their, they're all called up by a nickname. They've, this orientation class has become very close. He, he beats them down, but he teaches them and, but he builds them back up. So, and he builds them back up in a way of teaching and the way he goes about, it, it creates an amazing brotherhood, sisterhood. And the, problem is is when they go into the field they hear all this negativity and i'm just like i know you weren't taught that i know in orientation you had an amazing leader that showed you how to be compassionate that showed you set the bar very high and expected you to know this is what you have to know and you have to pass these tests because that fire in that house is not forgiving in that warehouse, wherever it doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care what you think about. It doesn't care if you've had trauma in your life, because when you go to put that fire out, it's going to be put out based on your skill level and your training and your training and your skill level is going to save your life. So I think that's one really cool thing about having a strong leader in a recruit orientation.
0: Was that Jamal? Yes, Lieutenant yeah. Free, so yeah. Shout out to Jamal Free Throw. I think one of the most <laughs> amazing human beings I have ever met. I mean the stuff he does, you know, completely off his own back for free, all the charity work and oh yeah. He, I think he was behind the the Dragon Boat race that we did. Yes.
1: Oh yeah we did Yeah, that, that was too.
0: hilarious. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's part of the honor guard. He, you know, he's there involved with the three four three hero challenge. I mean, just
1: he does drones, yeah, flies drones,
0: amazing, absolutely amazing. And yeah, and he's an absolute leader, and yeah. you, and he,
1: but he from leads from I've the seen, front.
0: Yeah, and you never hear his name mentioned, no, because he's not there for the glory, no. Like he shirks off into the shadows, in a in a I mean that in a very positive way, because he doesn't want to be there, you know, with a chest full of ribbons. Um He, but yeah amazing and that's exactly what you need and you said about the high bar you have to break people down and build them up to make them feel like a cohesive unit that's why every single member of the military all over the world does the same thing so if you have an orientation which i had in my last place and and they have changed it it has improved now but we basically just drove around theme parks and road rides and you know got to watch the fire engines and actually do anything that tested us in any way shape or form then don't be surprised that you have yeah, very you know you don't see brother and sisterhood there because you haven't forged it you have to do it at the front door but then like you said then you have to nurture that in the department as well so that's on you know the leaders of the whole department it to is. take that same model and apply it to so people can keep learning keep growing keep being challenged so that that foster that excuse me that that firehood as bull calls it is is ingrained all the way up through the ranks
1: it is yeah i hope I really hope it, it becomes better and we become more positive as a as a de- department as a whole just as a as firefighters all throughout the world. I you know, we all go back and get frustrated and complain and that's our place to vent, but sometimes those people take it to heart and it stresses them out so much that they don't want to work in a place that's this negative. So I understand it's a place to vent. I understand the, you know dinner table I was talk about this is what stays at the dinner table we're here to vent we see some of the worst things in the world and we have to express it somehow to our peers because the outside world just doesn't understand no and you don't want to tell them because you don't want to put them through the same trauma you just went through and that's our family that's our place and we stay positive we may have vent sessions but at the end of the day it's a awesome place to be it really is we have it's just a phenomenal phenomenal career i've i don't know of many other careers outside of the police fire service military that they have created this brotherhood if i break down right now on my way home there's about 20 people i can call right now to come help me and they will drop everything I say twenty, but you know, there's just a handful of people I can call, and they'll drop everything and help me. I know they will, and that's what is amazing because I don't have one family member here in Orlando, none, but I have a lot of family, a ton that I've just we've just I built up. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, it is. I, I mean, my wedding party. I only got married. Five years ago, and my entire wedding party were my Anaheim boys. Yeah, you know, and and it's you know there's some Orange County people that I adore as well. But that yeah. was my that was that crew. Yeah, you know? and, and I agree one hundred percent. I mean, there's people that I know would literally jump on a plane, fly two and a half thousand miles to to come mitigate an issue. So absolutely. Yeah.
1: But what other career? You know, I say what other careers? But you go to the corporate world, it's not always like that. So.
0: No. And then you go to some cool. fire departments like that too. No, it's you know, not. And I have the conversations. I have this very incredible position to talk to people from all over the world, you know. And people have even had on the, sh- the show that at that point everything was great. Now they're getting, you know, the shaft from wherever they work, you know. So it's, it's – th- that leadership is so important and that trust and, um, you know, forging that brotherhood and not being threatened – just because someone's a lower rank if they're trying to do good things or, you Mm -hmm. know, because that you need that group dynamic when the shit hits the fan. And if you don't have it in the fire station, you're not going to have it on the fire ground. And that's when you really need people to work together.
1: Absolutely. And you talk about understanding lower ranks and understanding diversity a little bit better. So I was really, I was having a hard time at 42 and i was i was on that rescue every shift and i was i was beat down and i was i didn't understand the culture that i was running on i didn't understand the what are they doing we had a probie come to our station and he was haitian and we called him um the mayor of pine hills because we'd run these calls and he'd know everybody and it was great he spoke creole it was most genuine, nicest man I've ever met. I, I remember I was so mad one day. I was just mad because I I was frustrated. I, I went up to my bunk, sat down for a minute, yeah, for a little bit of cool, cool down, came back down and he had, he like did the nicest thing for me. I had something so little, but he shined my boots. I didn't ask for it. I didn't tell him to I I, he saw that I was just having a bad day and that lifted me up but anyways the purpose of me talking about him is that he helped me understand that culture once he explained to me this is my culture this is what we do oh my my burnout like went away I finally understood why things were the way they were so I was talking to our chaplain the other day about this, and I really believe that to stop separating ourselves, we'd have to understand each other's culture. So the African-American community, I want to understand their culture because they have a whole separate culture than maybe the Hispanic community. What does the Hispanic community do? What is their... Their language, what's their slang terms? How do they treat each other? How do they treat, even down to how they nurture their babies? How do they do this so I can respect it when I run these calls and their wishes? Because again, it's some the in the Middle East. If we run on a Middle Eastern family, a first male first responder can't exactly do a touching on a
0: woman. Yeah, or taking off the hijab or. Yeah, all these other so, elements.
1: Yeah. So understanding those cultures will help us. Yeah. In this in this job.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny you said about the Creole um or the, the Haitian side. So funny enough, I speak French, like you know oh. English, like from England, we speak French, French, like just yes. regular from France French. But so I'm not like uber fluent, but I did do it for quite a while. So I was actually able to interact with the the Haitians quite a lot. And, you know, because Creole is, you know, a mixture of, of, of one of the African dialects and, and French. So they were able to kind of meet me in the middle. But I worked on South Beach while I was testing for Hialeah and worked with some Haitian guys. And so they started teaching me about Papa Doc and, you know, this, the civil unrest that they came from and this warlike, you know, basically a war zone that they were in. And then the voodoo elements where some people believed yeah. that you could change lights and kill people. And so, yeah, then when you run on these calls, you're like, you've got to understand, like, you know, this is heaven compared to what some of these men and women left.
1: Oh, you're giving me chills. You know, yeah. so
0: and in your absence, I couldn't agree more. Like, you have to think again, the backstory, like this whole kind of theme of this conversation is you can't look at that snapshot. Same as Instagram. I mean, you know, back to the George Floyd thing. I don't think anyone is questioning what happened there. Luckily, no. the entire film was available and people were able to see, no, this isn't. This isn't misunderstanding. That was a horrendous murder it that was. was filmed. Yeah. But there are other f- examples of, you know, of police you know, officer-involved shootings where when you see the whole thing, you're like, oh, shit, no. I totally get why because the guy was running out with a knife, you know, three <laughs> yeah. seconds before. So, yeah, I mean, undertaking the chime, I agree completely. A lot of us work in in communities where it will be one culture it might be you know all white like taft perfect example that's a specific very white culture in there a lot of them you know um but then you've got pine hills very haitian you know you've got um down south is very hispanic where i used to work in hialeah was like 98 percent cuban wow you know so yeah you have to you have to understand that and then like you said perfectly when you realize it's not someone being a dick there's a cultural difference that may jar with the way you were raised yeah when you can get past that then yeah definitely
1: we're such a melting pot yeah it's we have to understand each other better yeah, absolutely we really do
0: well i think that's a great place to transition some closing questions okay. i feel like we put the world to rest
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> sent them on my <laughs> lights. yeah <laughs>
0: no it was brilliant but the thing that's the thing that is that your story is so incredible and after telling it then it gives all these perspectives and now you know seeing it through your eyes is educating us through you know whatever listeners journey they've been to to reframe things a little bit Mm -hmm. so well one of the first questions i love to ask is there a book that has inspired you that you love to recommend to people can be something to do with what we've discussed today or something completely different
1: oh yes i i guess it's called
0: is it the orange county sop manual (laughs)
1: No, that'll put, you, that'll put you to sleep. One thousand
0: five hundred pages. <laughs> it'll save your job and it'll put you to sleep. <laughs>
1: um, the the I used to care too much about what people thought. I cared a lot, and I had a lieutenant, Lieutenant Mike Ramos. I don't. Yes. He he used to tell me all the time, Shannon. Are they like signing your paycheck? He's like, why are they in charge of what you? Eat? are they going shopping for you for groceries like why do you care what these people think and then i read a book called the subtle art of not giving a fuck i've read it too and yeah and it's super short uh, it's great for those people who don't really like to read and it catches you and it's it puts a whole new perspective on life and one of Man- mark manson's quotes goes um he's like there's always problems in life you're living you're always going to have problems so some problems are good problems some problems are bad problems problems will always be there i was like oh that's a great perspective because my goodness you you think your ac breaks your refrigerator breaks the and something else breaks the world is just crashing but no that's just life that's just it's gonna happen so once you learn to accept once i learned to accept it you know and that book really was amazing
0: brilliant yeah i, I listened to the audio book and yeah. it was quite funny. i think I've, I've talked about this before it was a great the content was great mm-hmm. but the guy was like he sounded like a soap opera app actor i don't mean yeah. that, again not being disrespectful if, god forbid if he's listening but it's just because there's so much cursing in it because obviously that's the whole you know point yes. is they're putting it in that kind of slang he almost sounded too articulate to be reading that they needed someone a little bit more gruff that was you know that fit what he was saying so um but it was it was very good but it reminded me of wayne dyer who's uh imagine like a white deepak chopra that same kind of character Mm -hmm. um he passed away sadly from i think it was leukemia a few years ago but he said there are two types of problems so the ones that you can do something about and ones that you can't he said, so if there's ones you can do something about, then do something about them. Fix it. And he said, if there's ones that you can't, then don't worry because you can't do anything about it. I'm like, damn yeah. you and your simplicity way diet. <laughs> it's dire, so but simple. It is, yeah, but it's true. And like you said, okay, your your fridge went out. All right, so you might be, you just have to buy stuff fresh and it's not going to be refrigerated for a few days until you can save up to get it done. But is that the end of the world? Is, is life going to grind to a halt? No, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you know, definitely inconveniences, but like you said when you compare it to six-year-old Shannon life is pretty good
1: yeah it is well life is really good (laughs) compared to yep all right well then
0: what about a movie
1: for the first responders uh anybody in the medical field really anybody that police officers anybody the there's a book to it as well but they made into a, a movie it's on Netflix it's uh brain on fire it's about a woman up in New York who, she went, she started having a psychosis. And they diagnosed her with schizophrenia. And she went through so much. And um, the story is amazing. And she's, they figured out the diagnosis. And she's back to normal working as a reporter.
0: Really? I've never heard that mentioned before.
1: It's an amazing story. It gets I think I. Everybody, I. If it ever comes up, I mention it because I'm like, no, they might not have schizophrenia. You don't understand. They might be, some underlying disease. It, you have got to read this book or ch- check out this movie. Yeah, it'll uh, change your perspective.
0: Brilliant. No, I will. I've, I've never. And that's the thing I love about this. I genuinely have watched probably at least 20 or 30 percent of the films that people recommend you know and sometimes the other times i've seen a lot of the other ones but but yeah i love it when i hear a new one because i mean uh, tiger king's over so I gotta yeah i know
1: <laughs> <else>.
0: <laughs> what about documentaries is, is brain on fire a documentary or is it dramatized
1: it's a documentary well it's it's dramatized okay but it's based on real life
0: okay all right so that well, okay, counts both Are there any other documentaries though while i'm on the, the subject
1: Oh, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. No, that's that's yeah.
0: that's more that's good then. All right. The next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world?
1: Ooh. There's many. I'd have to get back to you on that. Okay. Yeah.
0: I have a thing. It doesn't have to be about fire service. It can be anything. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. Then the last question then before we talk about finding you, what do you do to decompress?
1: Um... I go running. I'm not a runner. I'm not a marathon runner. I maybe can run like a mile or two, or I start exercising. But when I'm starting to feel my the anxiety, the depression, all of the sadness come back, I uh, work my heart rate up, and then it feels much better. That's my we did the CrossFit competition at your gym uh, a few years back. Yes and that was that was my that's my outlet and you find other hobbies but now i got kids i don't have time for thinking so i don't have many hobbies but definitely it's exercise brilliant body and then
0: healthy. do you run on a treadmill or do you like to run outside
1: i like to run outside okay yeah it reminds you you're still alive and the fresh air and yeah
0: that's what I was thinking. I mean, a lot of people say running, but I think there's a big element of the nature yeah. part while you're running. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the very last question. If you want to reach out to you, how do they find you on the internet?
1: Ooh. <laughs> Probably through you or through. I have social media, but I like to keep it private. Okay. Well, they can send, yeah. yeah.
0: They can send the email to, to, through the. We just email, I mean, message me on social media or the website, which is jamesgearing.com, has a contact me element mm-hmm. to it, too. So if you want to reach out to Shannon, then those two outlets would be awesome.
1: Absolutely. I'd love for people to reach out to me and I love hearing people's stories. I just have a private life just because of all the trauma that I like to keep. But I also really want to help people. So it's a fine.
0: yeah well that's the thing so they can do it through me and that way we can filter any lunatics (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right well i just want to say thank you so much i mean i this is why i love this podcast Mm -hmm. because firstly selfishly i get to ask the questions you know um but you know it's an uninterrupted uh story you know and there's no one like when when all of us are in conversation we kind of want to chip in oh but 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 i had this thought i have to tell you now i'll I'll forget it yeah you know so um but i think that this format that i love on other people's podcasts just works so well but it would be nothing if it wasn't for people like you having the courage to tell your story and being you you know transparent so thank you so much for driving up here and thank you so much for telling your story
1: i really appreciate you having me on here it's been awesome thank you